New theme for the Kenny and Paul show. Live from Uncommon Studios. Paul Schaefer is a genius. There's no one like him on the planet or in the universe. Like Superman, he probably came from a different planet with amazing superpowers. The combination of his ability to always create and play the right thing on his instrument, connect and communicate and collaborate with the greatest artists and musicians in the world, his amazing band, the audience, and people like David Letterman and Lauren Michaels makes him uncommon. Now, uncommon is being 100% authentic. Paul is that guy. His perfectly unique personality and unstoppable passion and desire to always make things right on so many levels, including his gift to feel and understand everyone in the room, makes him even more uncommon. He has it all and does it all, from Godspell to Saturday Night Live to Spinal Tap to the David Letterman Show for 33 years and musical director and producer of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction since its inception in 1986. People obviously love Paul, and it's more than just how well he plays his instrument. He motivates the room and inspires musicians to perform at their highest level. He really cares, and everyone can see and feel that. Musician, composer, singer, actor, author, personality, music director, producer, and host, and a wonderful human being with so much love and joy in his heart. Paul Schaefer has made millions and millions of people feel great, smile, laugh, and glad to be alive. So Paul, I've watched and heard you play on TV for many, many years, and then I got to play drums for you and be part of the world's most dangerous band for Late Night with David Letterman when Anton Fig couldn't make it. So having you as a special guest on my podcast makes me very happy, and I'm honored that you said yes, so thank you. First of all, I'm in tears. I've never had an intro like that. I don't know if I can go on. <laughs> really, that was beautiful, though. Thank you. And yes, we've known each other so many years and have played together for so many years. Did you do Letterman when we were at, I don't know, did you do it back in the end? NBC. The first time I did it, I'd flown With to, my band or with Mellencamp? With you, I filled in for, for Anton for a week okay. in the oh. NBC place. In the very, oh, nice. very first day, I'm, I'm crapping in my pants on so many levels, but that first day, David forgot I was playing drums and had me come and do stupid human tricks. Oh, I love it. Isn't that hilarious? You know, I'm sitting center You're stage. In the, yes, in the bit. Did you know before the air that he was going to do that? No. Or he just said, come on. I think he, ah. I think he said, uh, Anton, come up. What was he? He wanted David to tie a yo-yo on his toe while he was doing his handstand looking at, at a mirror. And David said, I don't do that. Anton, come up. And he went, oh, yeah, Kenny, come on up. And you said, go. I looked at you like, you're my boss, really. And you said, no, go. What a pro. So I went up there. And, you know, the poster guy's speech doing this, and Dave's going, come on, get that thing tied on. I finally get it tied on, and I'm standing, he says, now go back and do a drum roll. I mean, it threw me way off. Ah! <laughs> First day! That is hilarious. You know, it reminds me of when we had Mel Gibson on the show. I was in a similar position. We were doing a running bit called May We Turn Your Pants Into Shorts. 
And that's what we were doing. Just like, you know, Biff, stage manager, come on out here. Yeah. And we just, David and I, he included me, and with scissors, would just cut off his pants and make shorts. I was told to, you know, wear pants you don't care about this day because we're going to be making it. And then it was Mel Gibson. Let's turn his pants into shorts. And something, you know, I was rushing and I, I cut him with the scissors and drew blood. Blood warrior. I drew blood, yes. And he didn't like it at all. And I could feel it. And, uh, you know, uh, I usually have a different ending for this, this joke, but it's not a joke. It's true. But, you know, but I can't do that ending anymore the way things are today. Nonetheless, I think I'm responsible for his, all his problems because he just hated me after that. And later I ran into him at a restaurant, you know, maybe six months later, a restaurant in New York. And he looked at me and he said, ah, the slasher. Ah! <laughs> I slashed him. You got a name on Yeah. Well, this guy was road no, warrior. You know, it's yeah. treacherous. It was treacherous sometimes on that Letterman show. But you, obviously, you came through. And it's so great. You looked at the band leader. What should I do? It's oh very, God. you know. What else are you going to do? I mean, you're my boss. And I'm like, I mean, for the people who don't understand, and this is what makes you brilliant and a genius, people don't realize. You make it. It looks so easy. This guy up there waving his hand, counting people People watching this, I mean, first of all, Paul's talking to us. We have ear monitors, and Paul is talking. On that show, that week when I was subbing, we have all these walk-on music and walk-off music for the guests, and I'll explain that to the people listening, what that's like. But you all of a sudden making switches. No, forget about this song. Let's go to this song. You just call something up. And I remember one song you called up. I went, I don't know it. And then uh, Will Lee turned around and went, James Brown or something. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Right. Hey, I mean, as you're going, one, two, three, James Brown. And oh, I went, da, da. you were there. I, I bet a, you were right there. Oh, I was. But I was crapping in my pants. And another thing people need to know is like, on that week, just so people know, we get there, there's not a lot of time. We run this insane theme that you wrote, which we'll talk about, which is incredible. We get through that. Then we run through this, uh, so people know before it even goes on air, we're playing Limp Biscuit song or a Green Day song. Or, yes. Well, uh, I was being encouraged to, you know, update the repertoire. Yeah. And then we go to the theme at letter A to bring David out. Wow. Yeah. And then it's like, now that's we right. do. That's the warm up. You're... That's the warm up. So I'm going to give a scenario. There was a guy called, was a comedian, Jeff Stilson or something? Yes, yes. So, remember him. so yeah. this is what Paul does. Okay, we got uh, bringing on Jeff Stilson. Okay, Stilson, Stilson. Closet Stilson ass. Stilson, Stilson. Okay, let's do uh, Sweet uh, Judy Blue Eyes. Uh, uh. Okay, we'll start with you know, no, 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 no. Okay, then you come in. Okay, three, four. Uh, but everybody, yeah, because everybody knew it, and you knew all the yeah, songs but... too. That's why you were ideal. I didn't want to have to write things down, you know, in the old fashioned way. I got guys that just knew all the songs that I knew and loved, and we all loved them. And that was the basis of it. I think you could hear that, too. Well, dear, well, well, I, the love that we had for the, a James Brown record or something. Now, today, you know, you'd have to play something by Stephen Stills' son, really, to be, if you wanted to be, really be accurate with Stillson. David Crosby has a son. You know, mine's still working. I haven't done the show in eight, nine years. Still thinking about the play-ons. And where are the cuts? Where can, what can we yeah. cut? That's my TV mentality. Yeah. Well, you you were the expert at it and you know like you made it so real that was that was what made that band the 
best band on TV because of that. It just felt like a real band. It didn't sound like a TV band. It was a real band. That biggest, that's the biggest compliment. Yeah. yeah. Well, we weren't reading, you know. Once we got a horn section, all of a sudden you have to start writing down things. You have to have charts. I really was trying, even with the horn section, to get them to be as loose as the rhythm section. Be as spontaneous. And you got to know the songs. You know, I had some... With horns, it, it got difficult, too, because at least in my 10 years ago, 10, 20 years ago, the good horn players were the studio players and they may be the slightly older jazz-oriented players yeah. who didn't know, you know, rock and roll, didn't like it. So how could I have them in the band? So then you've got guys who do know it, but they don't necessarily have the chops of these brilliant you know studio musicians that i was working with but they say you know well why can't i play you know let me come down and play a show i would say well let's say jude law was going to be on let's do hey jude two three and he's just i said you know you've know. got to know hey jude <laughs> to play hey, in my jude. band yeah that's yeah. all there is to it you just have to know it and be able to play it on the horn, that's the all I ask. <laughs> Not asking too much. But I have to say, when the first time I played, you sent me a song list. It was 350 to close to 400 songs. I'm like, oh. But I just said, well, you know, pick five of these. That, well, I picked 30. Ah, I remember that now. Yes. I'm, I'm a well, that is how. Yeah. And I wrote charts for everyone. That's you. I mean, I didn't realize that. My God, I really did you a disservice. But this is what I saw you talking about on YouTube. You write every thing out. How many rock drummers do? Steven Adler? Does, is he writing out every... No. no, I don't think so. Well, here's the reason why. So, like, I got off a of Joe Satriani tour last year. I had 80 songs I had to do for two big events, like what we do when we do those big things where you have to do 25 songs. That's 50 right there. Then I had to do something else. Somehow it came up to 80. I can't memorize 80 no, songs. No, you can't. Well, can't. but that's a pro. You know, who else would do not only do you write them up, then you read them. And they make That's it sound it. like you're not playing live. Well, and yeah, you're not we reading. We did something. It's not like you're not reading. Yeah, that took me about 25 years. I remember I was doing, I had to learn a three-hour show with nine hours rehearsal for Melissa Etheridge, and they'd been on tour for three years. So they wanted to switch drummers. I went, there's no way I can memorize three hours. So I was doing a lot of sessions. So I wrote everything out. She turned around one night very nicely because she's so cool. She goes, you know, I can tell when you read. I went, that's not good. So I learned how to step out of myself and watch and listen to me like I'm a producer and go, do you sound like you're reading? Because if you think about it, if you're spending 25% of your brain focusing on reading, that's 75% left to be in flow and natural. So I went, this is not good. You never want to sound like you're reading. Make a mistake, but don't sound like you're reading. And so from that day on, I started to exercise how do you do it? Listening to myself like I'm in the audience. Okay, and critiquing it. and say, So once you say, yeah, I sound like I'm reading, then what do you do? Try not, not to. Try not to. Don't sound like that. Be live, be natural, be cool. You know, whatever music you're playing, if it's Zeppelin, be John Bonham, but do not sound like you're reading. It's a little stiff. So what if you miss a few notes? It's the energy in the vibe, especially on the drums. That affects the whole band. So that took me to the next level. You own that level. I'll do like Kings of Chaos, which is a super group that's so cool. And, you know, it's like Gilby Clarkson that played with Guns N' Roses and all these incredible musicians. And then they have special guests like Robin Zander, 
from Cheap Trick and bring in, you know, all these incredible, like maybe Ann Wilson, Billy Gibbons, whatever, and they feature these people. And I've got this stuff written out and I can see them saying, God, this guy reads. Yeah, well, when you come up to me, like Dee Snyder said, hey, can you bring it up from 138 to 139? Sure. Put the program. He walks on stage. It's 139. Hey, let's do it. I would have thought that Dee Snyder would be so tuned into the the metronome and the value of a quarter note. But you see, you never know people. Yeah, he, I mean, oh my God. And so you want to be able to make them feel like when they get on stage, they're comfortable. And they're, oh my God, this guy told, did exactly what I told him to do. Get that accent there. I can't. Dude, Kennedy Center on his thing comes up to me and we're, we're honoring uh, Springsteen. He comes up to me just about when the curtain was about to open and he's the final guy doing the rising with the chorus in the background. He goes, hey, you know, on the, that breakdown verse, you know, da 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 Up for the ride. Da, 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 da. It was just piano on him. Said, Could you keep the hi-hat going? Oh. I went, hi-hat, circle it. It's Sting. So, because he's all kind of loosey-goosey, so I'm going, keeping it there. I didn't want to miss that. And you're going seven artists in a row. Bam, oh, bam, 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 bam. And go. the president's there. And, you know, that shows. Oh, that's a wonderful show, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very high pressure. You don't want to. You don't want to high musicality, high level of musicality. Yeah. I'll tell you, man. You're like the greatest musical director. I mean, you just know how to deal with everyone and keep it loose. People don't realize what you're doing. You're not just a musician up there. You're dealing with David. You're the go-between the band, the audience, David, the stockholders, uh, whoever. You're the guy that, and you have that uncanny ability to know about all this stuff and a million things that I don't know. And you keep it all together. And that's why you were there for 33 years. They wanted you there for 33 years. You know a lot, though, as I was reading about how you do the Kennedy Center. And you said, I got to know everything. I, I got to know when a guy's coming on. Yep. I got oh, you know, you said, I, read yeah, I read all of that. Oh, yeah, I write down, Don Henley walks this way, Billy Joel walks that way. Right. I count off when Tom Hanks says, and next week, and I go, three, four, four. I even write down who has to tune their guitar. There's what if. I'm doing this Merle Haggard tribute, and there's two guys that have to tune, retune their guitars. I can't count off because they start the song. Oh, you got to wait for that. So I got Don Woods, the musical director, looking at me. I'm like, good, yeah. And I got okay. the click going. I'm looking at them. And I'm letting everybody know. So you're giving away here really something that not everybody realizes, and that is that the drummer is the true leader of the band. No matter if Under you're you. Under the Don Woods or me or anybody, Doing it, you've got incredible power. And as you said before, if the drums don't feel good, then nothing feels good. And that's the way. And if the drums feel good, then you've got something. Yeah. You know, and that's all there is to it. We dance to the drums. And the drummer, every song, the drummer is like running a mile. Oh, yeah. That part is easy for me. The uh, physicality is easy? Yeah, easy. Pretty good. I could do three hours. Full on. Wow. It's not a problem. You are, yeah. It's just, I want to be impeccable. I'll practice the most basic stuff, you know. It's like, I do tons of sessions in here for people who have no record deals. And so I practice the night before so that when I record, I'm performing. I'm reading. I want to perform. I don't want to be learning. It used to be, you walk in, you know, they put the song up because we had big budgets back in the days. 
you know, and these rooms are like 2,000 a, a day, if not more. And they, they play the song, you're writing it down. We're national with the number system. It's like two takes and you're out there. But if I can get the music ahead of time, I can chart it out. I like to run number four. So then when I record, I'm performing. It's more fun for me. And it sounds like you're performing. It's more organic. Well, of course, that's what we're aiming for. Yes. Well, you said what in the era? In the I did sessions in the era. Did I hear that? No, I said. Oh, okay. I said I did sessions, you know, back in the day, maybe I said, you know. Well, something like that. Yeah. 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 But yeah. that, I mean, I got a tinge of sadness. Yeah. As if the days of live musicians getting together in a studio or maybe even not getting together anymore, playing their parts individually, but at least live going down. Are you saying those, even those days are coming to an end? Well, because of budgets, and I saw the writing on the wall, was suddenly I was doing a Michelle Branch record, and I listened to the recording. I said to John Shanks, the co-producer and co-songwriter. He's I great. Said, Dude, I said, this sounds like a finished record. He says, it is. You're the last thing on. I had to tweak my drums in a whole different way. Usually I use a 24-inch kick drum. I went to a 22, took the front head off. I was trying to find where sonically I could place my kick drum and snare drum, where usually they work everything on top of me. Yeah. But in this could go on last because yeah. they've been working to... In a home studio. Yeah. Which is cheaper. And then I, with John... And then they move into a studio where they can... do drums. You, yeah. So I did a session for him, maybe a couple of years later, 13 songs in one day. I was in Philly, on tour with Michelle Branch, took a red eye to L.A., came in and did eight Alanis Morissette songs, one Melissa Etheridge song, two Anastasia, one that I think was John was working with, John Resnick from Goo Goo Dolls, and one was for somebody else. No artists were there. 13 songs, took a red eye back to New York to do a TV show. And that's when I, it was becoming even more apparent. It was cheaper to have one day in a studio with a good drummer. It can do 13 songs for five projects than to spend two days, if not more, with each artist and you're, cut, you're cutting costs. And that's when I went, mm. that's why I moved from Indiana, got my drums out of New York, Nashville, Indiana, and came here. And I realized, this isn't going to get better because people aren't buying records anymore. There's that too. But well, at least you put your drums on last. Some people don't even bother with the drums. Oh, well, that, yeah. Well, you have them already. Yeah. I've got Phil Collins' snare going here. I've yeah. got, you know, Bonham's foot. Oh, yeah. And uh, what more can oh, you Oh, yeah. Oh, man, it's just the technology is advancing. I just love recording. That's a big part of what I do. So I have my studio here on Common Studios. And yes. people send me files. I just... Did, uh, you know, three songs the other day. I got another five coming up for another record. I love it. You know, it's what I do. So, yeah. So I know you you were born, you lived for a little while in Toronto, then went to Thunder Bay, which, by the way, I did a drum clinic up there once. Wow. I mean, it was, like, pretty remote. It's way up there, and it's not close to anything. Yeah, Thunder Bay, that's where I, where I grew up. I'm surprised there were enough drummers there, but it's kind of interesting. Is that well, a they, community? Yeah, well, the two industries were, yes, pulp and paper. Yeah. Because there were paper mills. Yeah. And shipping. Oh, they would yeah. bring grain across from the prairie provinces, stored in grain elevators in Thunder Bay, loaded on Lakers, take it out the Great Lakes. Yeah. You know, and that's so the majority of the people worked for either in one of those two. 
industries. My dad was a lawyer yeah. servicing those people. Uh, yeah. Representing them in accident cases and or writing their wills and stuff. Yeah, and so you went just to do a clinic. Yeah, it was, I was on a Canadian drum clinic. Oh, I'd sure. never been. I'd okay. never been. Yeah, across all Canada. So I, I did that. So when just you alone, any other? Yeah, okay. nope. Just doing my presentation. Oh, look, kind of sounds lonely, especially the hotel up in Thunder Bay yeah. after the clinic. Yeah, I yeah. have some Canadian beer in the bar. Yeah. Is that where Shania Twain's from? She's from a place I've ne which I've never up been there. So Timmins, Timmins, Ontario. Timmins, I did one there too. Oh, sure, yes. Well, they've got a museum, I think. To her, uh, Shania Twain. They should. Damon Timmons, yeah, they sure should. They yeah. sure should, man. When you started taking piano lessons, I mean, were you self-taught first or did you just go to piano lessons? Both simultaneous, I think. I had one lesson. Well, first of all, we had the piano in the house, you know. There you go. And my mother played. But as soon as I started playing, she stopped. She never played again. It's like her work was done, you know. She got me into it. But at six, you know, she started me on lessons. And I came home from a lesson, and immediately I started figuring out tunes. First tune, this theme from uh, the Lone Ranger, the William Tell Overture. I found you could play it all on the black keys. The same day as my very first lesson, you know, all of a sudden it showed me there were keys. What did I know? It's a perfect pitch. No, but I have, you know, relative fish. But how did you know it was the black keys? You could have played it. I don't know how, but the black yeah. keys is only five. That's your yeah. pentatonic scale. Yeah, you know, yeah. it just, just seems so. I just fell yeah. upon it and everything to a kid was the Lone Ranger. Yeah, yeah, of course. And then a rock and roll hit on the radio. And all of a sudden there was a music that I could really relate to. And it's so simple. The chords were really simple oh, yeah. to all those early songs. And they still are. It's almost by definition. You can't get into flat nines or the chords of the standards, the 40, you know, my yeah. parents' music. But you sure can hear Elvis, Jailhouse Rock. And you can hear, and well, I started to find chords. Yeah. So I was kind of self-taught at the same time. And then I think the key, well, you said you had an epiphany. Mine, I guess, was realizing that what you're learning in your piano lesson and the theory, it's applicable to rock and roll. Right. And it's all about tension and release. And the, that one, four, five yeah. is really tension and release. You yeah. know, you go one, oh, yeah. you know, is, is sort of home. and You're Home and then you get Or out. a little more tension, yeah. five, the most tension, yeah. five, one is, yeah. you know, you're yeah. coming home. I found it fascinating. And then it was all about trying to find out what chords, you know, luckily, the, most of the chords, I had only those, those three, most of the songs. Yeah. yeah. I could play all those songs. What was on the turntable? What were your parents listening to? Well, my dad, this conservative lawyer up there, way up in an isolated yeah. town, but loved the great jazz vocalists. And like a Sarah Vaughn, uh, Ella Fitzgerald. Sarah was her, what, more so than Ella, but was my dad. Sarah, Billy Eckstein, and Ray Charles. And, you know, my own father turned me on to Ray Charles. So pretty. Too. Good for you. Pretty hip. So this leads me to a. a and that's. Yeah, I got to tell, well, and the organ, you know, that hearing that. Ray Charles, Oregon, with no Leslie, the way he had, just the straight sound wow. on, oh, you know, the outskirts of town and some of those things. Yeah, just the... What was the first time you played an organ? You didn't have an organ in your heart. No, no, but I remember so clearly um, because, it, and I wrote about it in my book, and I see your book there. Oh, Let's really plug it. it. Mine was out, I don't know, 10 years ago. Yeah. 
Is it called Memoirs? No, it's got a great name. We'll be here for the rest of our lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great Well, that story, you know, quickly that title came from when I was playing, uh, right after college, playing in a topless bar in Toronto, and they had live bands at that time in bars before DJs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, you know, all of a sudden all my friends want to see me play for some reason. All the guys are so interested in coming down to see me, you know, because it's a topless bar. And I'm a little excited about it, but embarrassed, too. And I said, well, thanks for coming down, you know. <laughs> We're here. How old are you? We'll be here for the rest of our lives. I was about 19, 20. I was underage, yeah. terrified, you know, growing a little mustache <laughs> to try to look older. And playing really the circuit that we read about when we read about uh, Robbie Robertson and Levon and the band. Those clubs, those tough bars up there in Canada, just as authentic as you might find in Arkansas, I think. You know, that's why they had that, that in common, I think, those guys from southern Ontario. Organ, though, in the synagogue, they had a fashion show with an organ, like a woman, a white-haired woman who played organ with full vibrato, accompanying the ladies of the ladies' auxiliary modeling, and she left her organ there. And I was there, you know, for Hebrew school, and there was this thing, and Another kid, slightly older, another piano player, figured out how to turn it on. And there were the two of us sat, figuring it out. And it was magic because the note lasted as long as you held the key down. I'd never, you know. What a concept. Yeah, I mean, I never, I never forgot that. That would have been, I was about 12, you know, playing that Hammond organ. Really related to it, I don't know why. Well, that, that's the main reason, I guess. Had you heard Billy Preston at that point? Well, I heard him when he came out, but certainly... Up in Canada, you know, we didn't get every record in the store. I had to order the wildest organ in town, Billy Preston's album, produced by Sly Stone. What? In San Francisco. Those cats were working together. Sly Stone produced <laughs> Billy Preston, yes. And did you know that on, I think, if you want me to stay and stuff yeah. like that, that was Billy Preston playing that. That was electric piano on a lot of that stuff. Dude, that's... First of all, I, I recorded with Billy Preston once, and I had never heard, because you know, all the stops, everyone can create their own sound. His sound was so unique. It was so eerie. It was a Joe Cocker record. And I was like, I, it stunned me. He was a master. Never heard anybody. with Absolute master. So this is something I have only told a few people, but very first SNL, I was in the house band of Saturday Night Live. Right. First five years. Not musical director, just a keyboard. Yes, yes, keyboard player. But right, Howard Shore was the name of the musical director. Right. Now an Oscar-winning uh, film yeah. composer. But I was a pianist, and I also wrote what we, in back in the day, called special material. You know, you know like if a host was going to sing a song, you know, I would work on that with the writers and stuff. So that was my. But I got these white Elton John glasses. And so, if I, and I didn't care. I loved Elton John so much. I was just wearing his trademark myself. And yet I worked for, uh, you know, I would stand out in these. I think I remember they were huge. So uh, talking about how the first guest, they had two musical guests, the very first show of SNL. Janice Ian, who had it 17 at the time. I'll never forget watching her sound check. And she said, you know, who got a little feedback? And she roll off to about uh, 200 uh, hertz. And I, wow, you know, that, yeah, that impressed me. And then Billy Preston was playing a mostly clavinet because he had, I don't know if it was nothing for nothing, but one of those great songs. And he had a great organ player, though, like from the church. 
and a second keyboard player. Yeah. And in between shows, I just went over there and I just looked at those Stop. stops and wrote those down. Oh, you yeah. Know? And I've been, you know. You didn't so have I an think, iPhone? Not back in 1975, <laughs> of course. I'm still trying to remember. Just take a picture of it. But uh, no, I wrote down the stops of it, you know. And it has magic all these years, just knowing that, how Billy Preston's organ played. I, I, I could support you on that. It was nothing I'd ever heard before. It was like, it stunned me. All these great musicians, my ears went right to him. Yeah, he was magical. I got to play with a few times with him. Not so, that time, because he had his own band. How old were you when you started your first rock and roll? Well, I, I joined an already existing band, and it was just a cover band, because that's all we knew. And I think the Guess Who... Of course, they're from Canada. Winnipeg, the next town over. And they played our town. 2,000 miles over. They're always playing. I think it was only 500 miles, but they played our town all the time. They said they would stop on their way home for Christmas. They would play Thunder Bay and make enough money, make about 100 bucks, you know, and buy Christmas presents. But before they had their own hits, they were this marvelous cover band. Oh, wow. That oh, played, you know, with Burton Cummings, oh. who became, you know, if he sang Georgie Fame, he sounded like him. And Randy Bachman on guitar, amazing, you know? Amazing. Cover band, though, that's, that was our sort of a model. So we were playing tunes by the Young Rascals and stuff. Oh. And I was 15, I guess, when I joined it. And we were called the Fabulous Fugitives, only because there was a television show called The Fugitive. Oh, yeah. Right. Television, yeah, I hate yeah. to say it. So that was my first band. Yeah, nothing. And what songs did you got? What cover, covers were you doing back then? Singing, you mean? Covers. What? Oh, well, I mean, all the Young Rascals oh. stuff, you know? That's some good stuff. And I think when did you I... sing? Were you the singer? I sang... No, no, I was not the lead singer, but I, I would sing a couple of songs. I can't remember which of my were, were the tunes. Love is I, a beautiful thing. Oh, it makes your heart want to sing. Love <laughs> is a beautiful thing, so beautiful. Yes, we were absolutely doing that. Yes. He was a great drummer. What you know about love. Did you play in a cover band initially? Oh, yeah. My thing was I saw, you know, Ed Sullivan, saw the Beatles. I turned to my mom, I went, you know, those guys, the Beatles. I want to play in the Beatles. Call them up. Get them on the phone. I'm done with the piano lessons, the drums. You were ready to play, and you said, call them up. I said, I didn't know what else to say. I want to be in that band. And, of course, she didn't call them up. We started a band called the Alley Cat. And, of course, but da -da 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 -da. we had a piano player. Who could play that? And he had perfect pitch. And you went to play. Dun -dun -dun -dun. And I think I did brush it. <laughs> And yeah. I didn't even know. Uh, my parents didn't buy me drum sets. So I, my mom, she was from the Bronx, and we grew up in the Berkshire. So, you know, we went down. She got a snare drum and a cymbal for Manny's. That was it. Not even a Good. bass drum. And the guy said, she says, I don't know. My kid, he's 10 years old. She says, Mrs. Aronoff, if you want to return this $20 drum, I'll give you your money back. I mean, that's old school. And I still got that. Great story. I still got that snare drum and the drum set. And you the, didn't return them, though. No, you and for that. so we did Beatles. Yeah. We did Beatles and Beach Boys. I didn't even have a bass one. I'd stand up and play and... Love it. Well, here I wanted to tell the stories about the Beatles because I did get to much later on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, induction. Paul McCartney really got Ringo as a soloist into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he yeah. said, if you induct him, I will come and make the speech. So now you have the two living Beatles and Ringo was going to be inducted and I was going to be the house band. 
Now, as a sideline, I call Will Lee, the biggest Beatles fan oh, in the yeah. world. Oh, yeah, they got the Fab Four. And I say, yeah, Fab Four is his oh. Beatle. He's got, had a Beatles tribute band, essentially, really, for yeah. 20 years. So I said, Will, we're Rock and Hall of Fame is in Cleveland at such and such date in March. I said, we're going to get to play with the two living Beatles. And he said, I can't. I've I got a gig. I said, who are you playing? <laughs> he says, the Fab Four. I said, you're going to miss playing with the two living Beatles to play with your tribute band. But a gig, you know, a gig is a gig. And the guys depended on it. So he didn't make it. Uh, but we had Paul McCartney. And I'm exactly, you know, playing with a little help of my friends. And actually hanging out with the two of them. They're the greatest thing. In between takes, you know, rehearsal of Help of My Friend. And just talking. And Paul says, Ringo sat down at the drums. John and I looked at each other and said, this could really be something. And I said, Ringo, you always knew how to swing. Each of these rock and roll tunes, there was always one element that was swinging and playing a shuffle against those. How did you? No, to do that, you made the records dance. He said, my dad. He always had Sarah Vaughan and Billy Eckstein, same as my dad, and it sounds like yeah. same oh, as yeah. your dad. Oh, yeah. totally. He yeah. says, so there'll always be a swing in my plan. Have you ever had this problem, not to interject, but I've had people, producers go, don't swing so much. I'm like, really? Don't swing so much. Don't yeah. swing so much. When people got more and more in drum machines and programming and sequencing on all instruments, I'd be laughing, going, are you kidding me? Don't swing. They want you to sound more mechanical, more right? Mechanical. Yeah. I have to make, play stiff. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? But anyway, I didn't mean to interject it. Well, the ending of the story is, you know, when I go to see Ringo, I always wish that there wasn't a second drummer because I'd love to hear his feel, you know? You can't really hear him when he's one of two drummers. So I just, you know... After McCartney said that, that John said, wow, this could really be something. And I took, I just paused and I said, but he won't play unless there's another drummer sitting beside him. And then there was another pause and McCartney said, well, why should he? <laughs> For me, 50 years after seeing the Beatles, I got called by Don wants to do the, the Beatles, the night that changed America, honoring them for the Ed Sullivan show. So I got to play with Paul and Ringo. Wonderful. But two weeks before, so you were the second drummer. I was playing with drummer. Me. Yeah. So, but two weeks, I did four songs or three songs. The first one, he played drums and sang Boy. Uh, da, 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 yes. da. Boys. And, uh, 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 the next two songs, Yellow Submarine and something else, my band will help with my friends. Um, He's just singing. He's he goes out front. Up. Yeah. Two weeks before, he was being honored. The David Lynch Foundation honored him. And we did four songs together. And it was everything you're saying. It was like, that's the sound of the Beatles. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uncanny. I'm like staring at them. What? How? You can't analyze it. It is just what it is. And it was unbelievable. Part of it is that swing. It's a swing. Yeah. And so underrated. People don't realize. Well, you know, here's, now they're starting to realize. Yeah. He's 80 something. And we're starting to realize what a great drummer Well, was. the thing was, was like. He wasn't flashy. Well, when we were younger, think about it. We were growing up, and before rock and roll was like Tony Williams, you know, Elvin Jones, all the Joneses, Buddy Rich even, Louis Belson, and then you get these rock drummers like Charlie Watts and Ringo Starr, and I was like, well, they can't play, but nobody understood, wait a minute, it's not all about chops, you know? It's these guys that have strong personalities where their bands don't sound the same without them. 
Nope. That's true. Yeah. They just don't. Couldn't. Yeah. Couldn't and, replace um, Do you play any other instruments besides piano? I play a little drums. You and as a matter, matter of fact, I thought of it on the way over. Back in the days of Saturday Night Live, I played in Gilda Radner's live Broadway show. Yeah, boy, you did a Broadway show. And she used to do a character like a Patti Smith yeah. type of character. And she and I would write the songs together. Wow. One was called, If You Look Close, You Can See My Tits. Because yeah. <laughs> I want you to, but don't want you to know that I do. That was her title. Oh, that's great. And I would write them with her, and, and I would be the drummer, because I can play a little, basically. And I remember Broadway, the Broadway shows, because we had no wedges, no monitors. Oh, right. We had G.E. Smith on guitar. He went on to marry her. But he yes, he did. G.E. and Gilda were married for hmm, a few years, I think. Yes. <laughs> uh, you never knew. I just learned something new. I How about a... that? Wow. Anyway, you know, I went and got, I had sticks called primal sticks, this thick, just so I could hear myself. Oh, they could, boom, boom, you know. What? But uh, I play a little drum set. Well, Manny? I think I probably did. Yeah. Do you remember the guy who used to, were you in town with the guy? No, probably not in New York. There was a street guy who used to play his sticks right on the street, right on the pavement. I remember seeing different guys. Sometimes just shorts, no shirt, and the summertime yeah. just playing. Yeah. I swear to God, I saw this guy in Manny's buying a new pair of sticks, and he took the cellophane off and went right out onto the street and started playing again. There was some character in some movie, might have been Taxi Driver, who says, <laughs> I saw him live. I used to what? see him. On the way to work down, yeah, I would be doing a Broadway show at that time. My first job in New York was on Broadway. And yes, patent leather hair. Yeah. And he'd say, yeah, Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa, here's the duet, the drum duet. Rich, boom, 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 boom. And he was boom. good. Yes, he was good. <laughs> yeah. Hey, how, what brought you to New York? I mean, you were doing the Godspell up there in Toronto. You got to say, I mean, the cast was. I know. We're SCTV, Saturday Night Live. We were all still best friends now. Eugene Levy, Martin Short, yeah. Andrea Martin, Victor yeah. Garber. Yeah. I'm from, I think I'm remembering. Gilda Radner was in it. Yeah. And Stephen Schwartz, the composer, just hired me up there. I was playing for a few people who were auditioning for him. And he said, I want to talk to that piano player. And he hired me for the show up there. And then he said, when this is over, I want to bring you into New York. And he did. Oh, he To did. play his show called The Magic Show yeah. with the late magician Doug Henning. That was my first gig, 74. How old were you then? I was 24, going on 25. And then Lauren Michael, who's Canadian, eventually he came in the city. And he, of course, Yes, he with him. Howard. Howard Shore was his, also Canadian. I had just worked with Howard before leaving Toronto, and Howard knew I was in town doing the magic show. So that's how I got that call for SNL. And the SNL thing, you did some great acting bits. You never acted before. It was like they just threw you in there and you did it. I was dying to get on camera, though. Yeah. I'll admit it. And I did one little acting thing. I left SNL in the second season to come here to Hollywood and do a pilot for Norman Lear, who we just lost. Yeah. And Don Kirshner, the rock promoter oh, yeah. and publisher. A monkey's type of show for the 70s. We did a pilot. It didn't succeed. But that's when I worked with this guy, Don Kirshner. Oh, yeah who went on camera on his own in-concert show. Yeah, as I did the last guy one. in show business. You did? I think I did <laughs> with Mellencamp, but I think it might have been the last one. Wow, I bet you did. And he started introducing the bands. I'm Don Kushner. He was terrified and yeah. stiff. 
Yeah. And welcome to Rock Concert. Anyway, I did this once on SNL and and it was like a hit. I got to do it a couple of times and even introduced Belushi and Aykroyd as the Blues Brothers doing this. When John Belushi, you know that. Are you doing like Yeah. Dude, you gotta tell me it's gotta be a highlight of acting. You know, Artie Fufkin and Spinal Tap. Dude, that scene, I even watched it last night. Someone I was like, I was dying. It was like one of the greatest. This is your referring to the kick my ass or in-store radio. Well, how did you SNL fifth year? A gentleman named Harry Shearer came into oh, yeah. the cast. He and I are still close friends. We wrote some things together on SNL and, and performed a little bit together too. And he was one of the Spinal Tap guys. One of the, he was the bass player, Derek Smalls, and the four of yeah. them, the three of them with Rob Reiner, wrote it together and everything. And he just said, for the local promo guy in Detroit, I've got this guy, Paul Schaefer. I think he's, he could do it. Harry just pushed for me. He's funny, believe me, you know, and he pushed for me and got me that part. Wow. And then I said, I remember saying to Harry, I'd love to do it, Harry. I said, so you, you send me my lines? He says, you'll be making them up, sir. And sure enough, that's the way it was done. There were scene outlines. You'll walk into the room. You'll try to get the band to come get up in the morning to do a, or an in-store, you know. But there were no lines. You would just have to walk in and start talking, you know. So I remember being outside the room. Now, who are the guys? Is Derek, Nigel, who are the names? And then I'm supposed to the record label, Sir Dennis. I had to learn all this stuff and then walk into, you know, Nigel, great to see, you know, and amazing. You know what was great about it? It was like you totally nailed the record company, A&R guy. I mean, at least you were familiar with A&R guys. And promo. This actually was like a promotion man on a local level. Oh, I had a friend, yeah. I, I was hanging out in the early days of SNL with, a, with an actual promo guy, and I don't know whatever happened to him. His name was Jim Knapp. Just having drinks with him and stuff, he hipped me to a lot of this jargon, promo jargon and stuff, and I could just use it, you know. I had to make up my own stuff. That's great. That's so great. I used a lot of his stuff verbatim. Now, they're doing a, a sequel. Mm-hmm. Right Have you I hope to. I got a call from Rob, absolutely. I, I should say an email. So if all goes well, I will be Dude, recreating it. my cameo on the idea. I mean, they're all a little bit older now. Oh, yeah. Well. I will be as well. What would this guy, Artie Fufkin, yeah. be doing now? I think they have an idea for that. Dude, that you got to be. Because that was like classic. There's so many classic scenes, but that, that was phenomenal. What legs that film has. Wow, how long it stayed around. And oh, now they're God. finally doing, doing a sequel. Now, I, you did, were you ever involved with them? Did you ever play? No. Because, I, as you, of course, the part of their thing in the movie was how the drummers kept dying on them. Exactly. One guy exploded. Yeah. But in real life, too, they work with other drummers. I haven't done that. No, I, I'm real good friends with a buddy of mine, C.J. Vanston. Of course, yes. He works with it. So, but uh, I think I, I, we had dinner the other night, and he mentioned something about they have a drummer, and I said, you might want to have three or four because they die, right? You know? Right. But they got, the, yeah, this is going to be brilliant. On the original, they had two musicians, you know, three of them actors, and then a drummer and a keyboard player, musicians from bands, both actual British guys. Yeah. Smart, so that they could, when they talked, they would have the real real English guys talk. Yeah, 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 yeah. The three of them were just trying to do English accents. And succeeding, I shouldn't just say try. Chris guessed, of course, half English anyway. Yeah. Maybe fully English, I'm not sure. Let's get to Letterman. How did you get that? You were right from the beginning. 
Yes. Who called you? Someone from his manager's office. And as a matter of fact, you know, I got called right as my five years on SNL were ending and everybody was leaving. And I was going to, I left with the original costume. I got a call at that time to do, you know, David Letterman is having a morning show live in the morning, an hour live in the morning. I want you to be a bad leader. And I just finished five years of SNL and I don't know. He thought I'd live forever, and I just, morning, it just, I yeah. don't know, I, and I passed on it. Letterman still, to this day, says, you didn't do the morning show, couldn't get up that early. Duh. <laughs> Duh. But they thought, it, you know, so that show, too hip for the room, I think, in the morning, and it didn't last, but oh, yeah. boy, was it funny, and it was actually live. And then they called me again when he got, well, now he's going to do a show after the Tonight Show, start at 12.30, 1.30, what do you say? And I said, well, now that's more like <laughs> even later than Johnny Carson. Now that's my kind of thing. <laughs> later, got to be hipper, you know. <laughs> so I was honored to take the job at that time. And just, you know, that was it. I went in for a meeting with Dave and we kind of hit it off. He says he saw me on SNL. Oh, yeah. Mentioned the, the things, the sketches I used to do with Bill Murray when he was the lounge singer. Yeah. Dave mentioned that and stuff, and we got on, and he said, what kind of band would you have? And I, I remembered the topless bars of Canada. There was one hip one called the Zanzibar where they had an organ, a B3 organ on the bar, different organ players coming in. And I said, well, I'd do like base it on the organ and do instrumental versions of R&B things. That's what I said to him. And he said, well, I've always thought of myself as the, as the Wayne Cochran of comedy. <laughs> I said, what a reference, a little known regional arm, the white James Brown from Miami, he mentions, you know, I said, I got to work for this guy. Yeah. And I got, I ended up working for him. Oh my God. That was, that was, a, you know, for us musicians, that was the coolest show in the world when that came out. Cause it was cool, man. Yeah. All the greatest musicians, the song selection was cool. Just my favorite stuff, but everybody related yeah. to it. And these wonderful musicians of my first band with I, the late, great Harlem Bullock on guitar. Oh, my God. Will Lee, who was with me all the oh, years, yeah. and Steve Jordan, my first drummer now in the Rolling Stones. We played the songs that we all loved. And some of these guys, you know, for the first time, were admitting, you know, this rock and roll, I've loved it all my life, but you kind of don't admit it, you know, you don't want, you want to be hip. If you're hanging with the Brecker brothers, you know, you've got to talk about jazz, but... Yeah. Turned out everybody loves to rock, too. Dude, that was incredible. So you got to tell me how you created the theme song, because that was like, that's sort of the coolest theme song any TV show ever. Oh, um, my, thank you. Was there like two versions of it? I remember doing There's been a lots of versions yeah. because they kept changing the film. The, you know, the opening collage. So you wrote and they Yeah, and often when they would change it, they said, well, we want a new version. But they all right, I'll come up with a new version which I would do, and then they would start cutting it down, making it shorter. Worried that people were going to flip over to Leto. Right. You know, let's make it even shorter. So then I'd have to adjust it. And that's why it had all those weird bars, a bar of 7-8. Yeah. Because I was trying to match was... the hits on the, yeah. on the film, but, you know, you had to... They've cut... Oh, they took a half a second out. Well, I've got to have a 7-8 bar. And it got very complicated one. to the... I remember we got, the last time I did the show, it was like, what? This is seven. Like, Why did they do that? <laughs> you know? uh, that's why. And then all the, you know, the triplets, you know. Yeah, I don't know. Just ideas great, that, I, that I've heard and that I just combined. But so what, what was the, and I always, you know, the first thing later than Johnny Carson, 
I just pictured like a late night organ right. trio. And I just don't, and that's just kind of groove was in my head. That's all. In the melody of Yeah, I don't know. Uh, got those four those four chords, yeah. which is really just, you know, two, five, two, five, one. Yeah. And then, uh, I don't know, just, just you know. Came, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. that's usually how genius comes. When I did that show, that was the, the highlight for me to play the theme because you hear it. I remember being in the memory camp band. Me and Toby, the bass player, is like, dude, I just love that theme. And, you know, did you hear it last night? Will went up and next to an you know, and that kind of thing. So, and I did, well, I did definitely, and I guess I learned this from Howard Shore, who on the Saturday Night Live theme, this is really, his band really maybe the first, you know, sort of contemporary. He had five horns, you know, and, and an R&B kind of rhythm section. Yeah. And the, his theme was like open for the saxophone player to play Junior Walker style. Oh, wow. No melody written, just chords, and let the horn player improvise. Yeah. And that kept it fresh. Junior. I said, ah, that's how to do, you know, live. So I did the same thing. I had a, a solo sections where people could, yeah. you know, and even, uh, you know, nothing really written. The bass line, could, Will could play it different every night, and, and he did. And that keeps it fresh. Keeps it fresh. Yeah. Oh, you got to tell me this. Right. You hosted the Letterman show like four times. Well, man, I think only twice. Twice. But anyway, yeah. the bottom line is ridiculous. What, what was that like? Because, I mean, it's one thing to look at it, but then all of a sudden you have to do it. And then you have to hire an MD. And you're looking at a guy that is doing your job. The main thing is, it's just I thought my job was hard, but Dave Letterman's job to carry the whole thing. There's nothing like it. Just nothing like it. There's so much pressure. He got so good at it, of course, but he worked very hard on it. Oh, so yeah, it was just incredibly hard. That's all I know. What was the hardest thing? But just because you have you just every second, just the knowledge that you are, you know, it's all on you, and you are getting cues. You got five minutes, okay? Five minutes with, I think we had the lovely actress who was in the Ray Charles movie. Yeah. Oh, her name escapes me now, but she, you know, she got bigger and bigger and directs and everything. And uh, I told her that just like her, I said. Dave pays me in ones, too, just because, remember Ray Charles? Yeah. <laughs> I paid in ones so he could count it. Yeah. Just that you've got everything on your shoulders. Steve Van Zandt was one of my guests, and we did a number, Love is a Beautiful Thing. Oh, yeah. We did that at the end of the, you know, the two of us. Well, what did you, well, did you play? Did you actually go? Up? I went over, We, you know, the two of us went over to the bandstand and yeah. joined the band yeah. and played a number. That would be like the way if I had a show, that's the way it would be. I'd be here on the panel and I'd go over there and and you would do a similar thing here, right? You get people to go across the hall. I remember and play some, a little Yeah, I, I remember someone suggesting me do a show. I said, Well, I'd wanna you know, I'd wanna be involved. I wouldn't wanna be just a guy counting off. I'd wanna be involved, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, so maybe this podcast we I don't have my drums here, but you know, they're in that room, but Maybe eventually that's what we're gonna, you know, we're gonna get to, you know. I just uh, got to appear on the Kelly Clarkson show. Oh, you did that? As you know, she's moved her show to New York. I didn't know that. Yes, she's great man. She's, she's great, incredible interviewer. So yeah, so she's in the old studio where we started Letterman when we were on at twelve thirty. Oh my god, in NBC? Yeah, and they had an idea. You know, I would sit in and in the same room. Her. Yeah, same room. Can't recognize a totally different right. set. Yeah. But they've got an MD, fantastic. And he, you know, talk, you mentioned how I'm talking to the band and stuff. Yeah. Well, now that, you know, not only are they on ear monitors, but he's got like a little computer 
And every cue coming up, he's just saying, you know, okay, such and such cue come out, here's a little taste. And he plays it for oh, you. Oh, wow. On, you know, and then so you re- remember cool. it, yeah. And then he counts it off. So everyone is like that. Here it is again. He plays it oh. two, three times. So we can almost all learn it right, right there. While she's talking, yeah. Wow, that's pretty cool. That makes yeah. sense. But there was one point, you know, he said, here's a little taste, and I hear two, three, and I go and I play right in the middle of the interview. Well, now you know what I felt like when I was playing for you. Ah, uh, there's always mistakes like that. <laughs> oh, some worse than others. Oh, my God. I just, what was one day preparing? What was, your, what was a day in the life for you? And let him ensure a week in the life. I mean, whatever way explains the best. How did you day? Uh, every day was different, you know, because some days... We would be playing behind what we in TV would call an act, you know, either with a band or, or be or you know, playing behind a singer. And other times, not doing. It. If we didn't have an act to play for, we would come in at about I think ten to four, yeah. and have fifteen minutes to play to work on our cues. Doesn't sound like a lot, but you only need Jeff Stilson, you know, so you only need eight bars, yeah. So you don't have to, you know, you don't don't have much of a, and I got to do it really quick. And I would also say, well, who, you know, any funny ideas? Who who thinks anybody got an idea for? uh, Whatever guest. Yes, I don't know. Like Gibson. Yeah, I don't remember what we played from, but I mean, I remember when Ellen DeGeneres came out, you know, and it was so courageous of her on her, and she had a sitcom. And and somebody, what should we play for Ellen? Somebody said, "I'm, I'm a girl watcher. Perfect. So I would take suggestions, learn the funniest, eight bars of I'm a Girl Watcher, and just go. What about like at night where you're getting calls from David? Hey, listen, tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. We... Sometimes you would. Sometimes we would prepare a little the night before. Mostly, though, I get a call. Well, I'd have an assistant who would go and attend the meeting at yeah. 11 a.m. <clears throat> I knew I couldn't get up that early. And then he would call me and say, okay, this is how the show is laying out now. First act's going to be this, second act of it. But I eventually learned, don't pay attention to this. It's all going to be different. By the time I get in there at 3.30, 2 or 3, everything's going to change. And it did, you know. So once I got in there, the show was so damn loose. Uh, you wouldn't believe it. And skin of your teeth, it never got easier. But that was, that, you know, you so much fun that. about it, yeah. And especially in the old days, we got away with, on NBC, we got away with murder, loose mistakes, leave it in, you know, cheaper. How about this mistake? You were the first guy to say fuck on SNL. That's on SNL. And uh, that was, that was a mistake that they were remembering something that I, yeah, I'm not proud of it. Yes, it was an absolute mistake because it was a little improv. Normally there's not much improv on SNL. It's scripted, scripted and blocked. They want to know, is it close up here? There's going to be a two show. Yeah. You know, everything is very much rehearsed. But in this case, Franken and Davis, the great comedy team, yeah. uh, Al Franken became a senator for a hot minute. Yeah. Davis no longer with us. I don't know if you ever remember that thing that circulated in the music business, the Trogs tape. Oh, absolutely. Pot Trog. up, pot up, pot up, boom. <laughs> yeah. Play it to get, right? Is that one? Yeah. Uh, exactly. Trogs, of course. Big band when the British invasion did wild thing. Yeah. And a trape that circulated and behind the scenes, them in the studio trying to record a follow up. And they don't know how to try. They have no musical terminology. They don't know how to do express themselves in the studio. 
All they can do is, is say, you know, the fucking beat. You had the fucking beat. Pata, pata, boom. That, you had it before, mate. So Franklin and Davis said, it'd be funny to take these lines, but transpose them and make it a medieval band rehearsing for the king, about to do a concert for the king. And they're rehearsing and they say the trogs lines, but of course you can't say the fucking beat. We'll make up our own word, the flogging beat. And I was in it, you know, saying those lines. You had the flogging beat before, and I was getting big laughs. And Franken, in the middle, in between dress and air, said, you're doing so well with those flogging. If you want to add a few more, oh, there you go. be my guest. Well, he shouldn't have said that because I got loose. I was saying the flogging this and the flogging that. And then I slipped and I said the fucking beat. And then I, my face went white. I've seen the tape. Just, oh my God, what have I done? And I look like, oh my God. And then I said, Wait, where are we in the sketch? I come back. <laughs> but I was, I thought, this is, my career is over. But they kept it. Though. Lorraine Newman said, at the end of it, she says, well, you just made broadcasting history. And when Lauren Michaels came over, he said, well, you just broke down the last barrier. They knew I didn't do it on purpose. Of course not. Guys got fired for doing it on purpose yeah. later. But I didn't, and it was all, and yeah, they kept it. They edited it, I think, for like the West Coast of later. Nobody complained because we were all trying to do British, bad British yeah, acting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You couldn't quite tell. It didn't like jump out. It wasn't so bad. And also, didn't they have a seven-second delay on SNL? Only when they thought they needed it, like when Richard Pryor did it. Oh. The seventh show, I think. They had a seven-second delay, yeah. So Not they all did? the time. Oh. So there was no delay on this. Whoa, it just whoa, goes whoa. out, yeah. You made two solo records, right? Yes. Are you going to do another? Or you? I don't know. You know, is there a market for an old guy no. doing a record? So you'd have to just, just want to do it. Yes, want to do it. I'll tell you, I do, as a producer, I've got an, a new piece of product I just finished. Oh, good. Since I was in college, I've been playing with a, an esoteric jazz musician named Tsiji Munoz. Plays guitar like nobody. He's not blues-based. He's more Coltrane-based. You know, I have been playing in his band. It's just so avant-garde. There's no music, no nothing. Everybody just plays. And I've finished a record with him. I got to see if I can get somebody to, to put it out. I hope I, that you get to hear it. It's like, uh, you know, from beyond. It's, it's outer space. Yeah. I, I'll have to check it out. That sounds amazing. I mean, you played on a lot of people's records. Did a lot of records. Not like you, though. I look around the studio and say, wow, you know. Well, you played on a lot of it. A lot of but yes, in the 70s, you know, I started so doing it in doing the 70s. Any, are you playing on people's records now? Yeah, yeah, here and there. Yeah. Here and there. Yeah. Sometimes you just, you know, get a call. Uh, yeah. We'll send you the files. Yeah. It's a little yeah, different. Do you have a studio? You, no, uh, I don't. But, but, you know, I have had people yeah. most recently. Peter Chris. Oh, yeah. Our friend from yeah, KISS. I love Peter. Came over, uh, you know, with a lap, an engineer, a laptop, and a couple of mics and recorded my organ. I got James Brown's organ in my apartment that I bought at a oh at a state sale. It plays itself. It's so funky. So I can record at home and stuff. And there are still some studios, not so much in Manhattan. You got to go to yeah, Jersey no, and stuff. Expensive. Yeah. That's right. for him. All those great zoos. That, who thought the Hit Factory would close? All those gorgeous rooms and I don't know if right track's still there. I mean, all this stuff. I think the quad's right track. still there. Quad's still there. Quad, if it is, it's, you know. More R&B, I mean, yeah. uh, rap. And then the power station got bought by... by Berkeley School of Music, but still running. You can Thank still God. buy time. One of the greatest rooms in New York. It sure is. All right, so what, 
You don't look like a guy that has a five-year plan because just everything is just grooving and going and happening. I think that's the way it was all yeah, this time. Me too. Things just happen. So do you have anything that you haven't done that you're thinking, I, I want to do this? Not necessarily. You know, I do have a symphony show, which I've gotten to do four times, four different orchestras. And it's just all pop stuff that I love. And I take a rhythm section. And Valerie Simpson has been my special guest on all these gigs that I've done. So she sings all her symphonic, you know, ain't no mountain high enough symphonically and stuff. And I just do my favorite stuff. I start off with Barry White loves theme. Come on, you know, and end with Day in the Life by the Beatles. And, uh, you know, in between is just all the stuff I love. That's what I hope to do more of. And let's face it, it's, you know, you think, our pop music is a dying beat. Imagine how the orchestral musicians oh my God. feel. Because the computer can replace us all. You know, I asked Sammy Hagar this. I said, hey, man, so when did you realize your purpose in life? And he goes, my purpose has changed. He says, Kenny, that's a good question. Because you know what? Actually, my purpose has changed. At first, it was like, man, I want to be a rock star. And it's about me, me, me. And now his whole thing is, is about giving. And it's all about them, them, them. Nice. Is your purpose changed at all, or are you still just, this is what I've always wanted to be, and I became this, and I'm still digging it, till you know. Till well, I think that, you you know, when I had kids and, and, and yeah. had a family with my wife, that, that becomes one's purpose. Yeah. Really. And I couldn't be, my kids are grown now, but yeah. I'm so proud of how well they're doing. Oh, and I think that's got, you know, that does take over. And now I just love to play I'm realizing that with all the show busy stuff I got to do, really playing the piano and, and the organ is my favorite. And I'm, I'm practicing again. You know, I wasn't really practicing during Letterman, playing all the time, you know. Yeah, right. But I'm getting better. That's awesome. There's a joke about it. I think Pablo Casals, the cellist, he's 101. He says, I think I'm finally making some progress, you know. But that's the way it is. I'm getting some, some things together uh, technically. I think drummers relate to this more than oh, other man, musicians. I have to practice all the time to just do the same stuff I do. Yeah. Well, me too. I didn't have to practice before, but now I'm practicing and enjoying it. Enjoying That's it. So cool. Played a little gig with some of our friends at the Bitter End the other day. Oh. Just and I, and I really had a great time. Oh man, thank you so much. For this is fun coming on hanging. You know, it's like I'm looking at my twin. As a matter of fact, you met my twin. Do you remember Car me? Carmine Rojas. No, it wasn't oh. Carmine. My actual twin, it was Bob Ezra and you on the street. I was walking to do rehearsal, and then there's the four of us, and people were like, there's three of them. But Ezra is not a Bob. No, but like my that. twin brother was with me. and I. Oh, your twin brother, I remember now. I just shaved his head. Yes, yes. I said, come to the rehearsal. I said, John, you got to shave your head. And I had some clipper, and the clipper came off. And went, he went, what'd you do? I went, you're going to have to shave your head. And we walked right that out. Was the day. And I never saw you on the street. Where is your twin brother now? He's in Stockbridge. He's a psychoanalyst. Oh, good. And he shaved his head every day. Yes. I mean, this keeps the gray hair off, you know? There's something to it. Yep. Anyway, Paul, thanks. Pleasure. Dude. Pleasure, Kenny. Pleasure. Let's make a record together soon. Yeah. We will. Okay.
I can't really. 